I think you gesticulated and knocked your cord out. <laughs> Am I okay now? Am I okay? Yeah, you're back. Hello and welcome to Make It, Move It, Sell It. On this podcast, I talk with company leaders about how they're modernizing the business of making, moving, and selling products. And of course, having fun along the way. I'm your host, Adam Honig, the CEO of Spiro.ai. We make amazing AI software for companies in the supply chain, but we are not talking about that today. Instead, today, we're talking with Paul Dietz, former president and now senior advisor for Chip and Hook, probably the best branded retail fixtures company out there. Paul, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. Thank you for inviting me. It's our pleasure. Now, tell us a little bit about branded retail fixtures and chip and hook. What does that mean? It's a funny little corner of the business. We like to say, our products sell your products. And we design fixtures. Let's say you're selling necklaces. We design a neck form that helps tell your brand story without overwhelming the product. It's a very, very odd balancing act. If we've done our job well, you don't see our stuff, but you feel it. Gotcha. So the the goal is to showcase the product, but still have a great presentation at the same time so that it all looks wrapped and neat to, to go. And what kind, is it jewelry? What kind of products do you typically package? So we started with jewelry and now we started with fixtures and displays. Then we went into packaging and then we decided we could replicate that same brand journey in eyewear. We now do it in medical or in footwear. The concept works the same. As long as there's a brand that wants to tell its story at retail or in the unboxing experience, when someone gets home, if they want to continue their story there, we're the place to go. So that's really interesting. Of course, retail has been under a lot of pressure for a while now because of e-commerce and the pandemic and stuff. So is the unboxing part of the business become a bigger growing sector? Very much so. And actually, one of the things we do is unsolicited unboxing of people that we don't. They're not our customers. That sounds kind of scary. What do you mean by unsolicited? We'll go out and buy a brand, buy their packaging, and give them at no charge critique about ways that they could improve the unboxing experience. And we've actually got a lot of customers by putting that time in on the front end Usually there's not a lot of people at a brand thinking about those things. But, you know, you sell a beautiful, beautiful necklace and your online experience is a, is a Ziploc bag, there's a problem there. You're not romancing your own product. And, and when you're selling online, the brick and mortar is your box, right? That's telling your brand's story. So it's been an actually a very good tool for us to round up new clients, so to speak, which is how we're managing through the change at retail by increasing our market share because everybody is under pressure. Everybody is under pressure and we're just widening our market share. Yeah. I really love this concept that the packaging is like the retail for people. That makes so much sense to me. And you're right. There are some companies like Apple who it's like a religion for them about how things go. And I feel like companies that I talk to in the manufacturing space seem to either want to be Amazon or Apple or some combination of the two of those. 
you know, they want to kind of adopt from these leaders the best practices. And I've also been developing this theory that as world has gone to more e-commerce, that the packaging, the whole look and feel, even the shipping and everything of products just is so much more important than it used to be. So it sounds like you're seeing that in your business too. It's really critical. I think our stuff, we started in jewelry, which is very small. So everybody's looking at the details. So details matter, right? So when we started going to bigger things like eyewear, our eye towards very small detail translated very well. It was something they weren't used to seeing. And frankly, we're actually tearing it up in medical right now of all places because you would be surprised at what your doctor uses or puts in your body even. It's branded. It's a, it's a brand of knee replacement or whatever. And they've never really thought about telling their brand story and differentiating themselves from the competitors. That's really what it's about is differentiating yourself, I think. I'd like to talk with the guys who name those pharmaceutical products. Like, is there a requirement? Like, it needs to be five syllables and have a Z and a Y in it. It's like a strong password. It's like a crazy name. Who comes up with these names? It's, it's, you're absolutely right. And what's even wilder to me is just how their packaging requirements, which are right and absolute for safety and to be germ free, that's not the space we live in. That piece gets then put in to a branded piece. So it's an extra step, but the packaging requirement for these medical people, holy guacamole, and don't even talk to me about cannabis because that's different in every single state, sometimes in different parts of the same state. It's a crazy thing to navigate, but it's really important. Unfortunately, I've been a, a habitual COVID tester as I've gone to a lot of meetings with clients that I don't want to show up and give anybody COVID. And if I can buy the Pfizer Binax, it just looks so much nicer than all of the other ones. It just like, it makes me feel like it's a better product, even though it's all the same. Like, I'm sure it's exactly the same reagents and stuff like that, but I just feel that way. It's like the generics in a generic encetamipin is... It's the same, but you feel better buying the branded name because they put some skin in it. Yep, yep. And in medical stuff, the placebo effect is really important too. So if you really feel like you're getting that premium heart valve or whatever, then you know right. maybe you are. I don't know. I think there's something to it. In medical, so far at least for us, our client isn't the end user, it's the doctor, that he's getting the very best to put into his client. And they get brand loyal, just like you and I get brand loyal about the pants we wear and, and the shirts. Every brand has a story. And in medical, it's distinctly different than, say, a beautiful jewelry necklace and bracelet, you know? Yeah. Well, with the prices of some of those medical products, though, I bet they're more expensive than some of the jewelry, as a matter of fact. Now, how did you get into this field, Paul? Because I know you weren't like growing up being like, I really want to be in the branded retail fixtures business. I have always been involved with custom manufacturing, which is a weird little corner of the universe. I started making uh, furniture products that were custom, and then I got involved with custom musical instrument cases for like people that were in orchestras and they had some mm -hmm. valuable stuff, right? All one or two off. And the guy that sold me my material for the musical instrument cases said, you know, I know a guy that has this business in jewelry display and you guys would be great together. 
And I met him. We were great partners. And eventually that company got bought out by Chippenhook. And I ended up being a gift with purchase. That's a great story. I can't tell you how many stories uh, you know I tell or I hear people tell, which always start with, I knew a guy and then this happened. I stay in contact with almost everybody I've ever been in business with. It's just amazing how putting a little bit of effort into staying in contact yields you such a robust life. Just hear about things. People move on into different industries and you kind of hear a little bit about that. I just think it makes you a more complete person. You and I were talking about this pre-show, but there's a lot of lessons that that we teach our younger staff that are coming up through the ranks. And I just wonder, what's you know, how do you teach them how to stay in contact? Like, what's your advice that you would give folks? I really don't like junk email, but for 30 years, I put out something called the Monday Maxim, which was just a little saying, just one sentence. And everybody I've ever known was on that contact list. And you'd be surprised how that little message to everybody I knew resonated with people. I'd always get a couple, you know, I'm sending out a thousand, but I'm always getting five or six back every week saying, you know, I was thinking about calling you or this happened to so-and-so. I think selling today is much different. I think it's about finding out where the rock is in someone's shoe. We fix problems. As salespeople today, that's our job is to fix a problem. We're not selling a product. If you can go in and have an honest discussion, I mean, no one calls us up because things are going great. They're calling us up because there's a problem somehow, whether it's in production, whether it's the brand message isn't consistent across the board. I mean, sometimes you have brands that deal with three and four and five and 10 vendors. Well, every vendor is trying to interpret the message and it's not coherent right across the brand. So I think for me in sales training, staying in contact with people and listening, 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 and finding out where the rock is in their shoe. That's the secret. It's really simple. Gotcha. So really just, you know, focusing on the very fundamentals, of course. And I know there's so many people out there who talk about all these advanced techniques and email sequences and stuff like that. And, but I totally agree with you. What I think what it really comes down to is how do we help people? How do we make sure I always talk about with the team, you know, people are looking for the holes. They're not looking for the drills. And how do we, you know, help them figure out where the holes are that they're trying to either drill or fix or something like that? That's exactly right. And and maybe there is a better way. I mean, I look, there's many paths to the same place. I think you have to be authentic. I'm a really big reader. I love business books. And if I'm reading a great business book, I'll buy five and I'll highlight an area that really spoke to me and send it to people unsolicited. And that's me. If one of my salesmen tried to do that and they're not into it, I have a salesman that's a great chef. He drops off recipes when he goes and makes sales calls. It's his story, right? And and God bless. I mean, I think you have to be authentic. I think you have to be truthful. 
And I think you have to be highly organized, which is kind of where Spiro comes in. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about your sales team and experience at Chip and Hook, because uh, I know the manufacturing industry is often not the most technology forward. And uh, you've just gone through an exercise of getting the team to adopt new technology. So maybe tell us a little bit about what that was like. It was possible because anyone, I, I use myself as an example, if I can navigate it, anybody can navigate it. And having a platform that was easy to navigate was helpful. What we found that surprised me along the way is we didn't have standard terminology. We thought we did. We thought we did. But when you start recording it all, define a prospect. I had 15 different definitions of what a prospect was. Right. Like some guy, it was when he saw the sign on the building for another guy is when he had a signed contract. That's exactly right. So, I mean, the first time, the first time we made our first week's pass, there was one guy that had, I don't know, $15 million worth of prospects. And I go, we got a definition problem here. And that was helpful to us. How long does a prospect live? We all lose a customer from time to time, but we keep them on the customer master. Well, you can't. They're gone. It's done. Life changes, right? Let's just drill into one of these things for a second. So how did you get the team to agree on the terms? Was it you just told the team this is what we should do? Or was it a consensus? Or how did that work? It was with the sales managers, of which we have two in our in our family of companies. And I believe that they spoke to their salesmen to get input. It was pretty clear. You throw up a screen of everybody's sales funnels. And it was pretty clear something had to happen. And then it was just a matter of adopting something that was standardized. But there were so many, I can't remember them all, but things that you thought you knew that you didn't know that improved by the old adage, what is measured improves, right? And we weren't measuring accurately. I thought we were, but we weren't. Now, today, you can look at the top of the sales funnel and with deadly accuracy, you can predict what the sales are going to be. Our, our sales cycle is very, very short, right? So we design something, we build it. It's maybe a six or eight week build in the factory and then maybe four weeks on the water. So we can go from start to finish in three months on a, on a project quite easily, right? Um, so with a short sales cycle, your funnel at the top is really big. And figuring out how that funnel relates to monthly sales, and of course, now that we've been with Spiro for, what, five years, we have all that data. And you can play around with it. And that's what I think the sales managers love. And that's what keeps selling me on the product. You guys really should put me on the payroll. But it really is a magnificent tool that's easy to use. My salesmen range probably from 40 to 70. So none of them are just fresh out of school and dying to do more data entry. This allows really data entry once and then it gets fed into our other systems from there, which is very helpful. So from an adoption perspective, of course, picking an easy to use product, super important. That's key. Getting the definitions right, you mm-hmm. know, so that everybody's talking on the same page about what these things mean and then measuring as a result. And we measure, we have quarterly sales meeting where everybody's involved. They're actually using 
slides off Spiro. So it's very easy. Then, then you, of course, you get as it, with any sales group, you get. I mean, salesmen are competitive by nature, so they see what other people are doing, and it's in the same format. There's kind of no wiggle room. I one of my favorite sayings. Our current president, Mark Zelt, came up with it. You can't fake the harvest. At the end of the day. The numbers, the sales are what they are. It doesn't really matter what the top of your funnel looks like if you're not closing the deal. And that that is visually clear and apparent, which is a wonderful thing. So what do you think about chip and hook that makes you guys more number hungry than other people? So our parent company, Sigma Q, is a huge manufacturer in Central America, one of the top 100 in Central America. And... Uh, they have plants that make boxes for Colgate on three-year contracts. So it's a very different beast, right? It's a numbers-driven company. And they bought Chip and Hook maybe eight years ago now. My sister companies have three-year concrete pipelines. And they came to me and said, what's your pipeline? I said, oh, about three months. And it just, their need for data for a big company to understand and do planning meant that we had to understand our data in a way that when we were an independent company, we didn't maybe have to. It's made us a much better company. Oh my goodness. But it was out of necessity. It was it was our parent company. They run SAP and and they're very serious about it. And anybody that's worked with SAP, you know, it's just a very rigid program and that fits them. And then we come along and our sales were varying upwards and down by 30% on a, on a month because if the bubble moves past the end of the month, it makes a big deal on our numbers. And Boy, we were able to flatten that and be very predictable. That made me look good in front of the board of directors and probably kept my job for however long I was there because God knows I'm not a numbers guy. <laughs> <laughs> so the 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 analytics, the the data hungriness was sort of imposed from above in a sense. But what, what it seems like the takeaway is that it actually made the business a lot stronger. Because you guys were able to predict better and that yielded operational efficiencies in the business. Did it improve profitability as well? Profitability. And for us, we were able to target new clients. We've, all, we've always targeted new clients, but we have programs. There's a huge one that we've started right now towards new client recruitment in a way that we never have before. It's tracked. The success is unbelievable. I mean, I think last year for Chip and Hook, over 20% of our customers were new customers. So the growth has been phenomenal. And I, I believe it's managing that data. Obviously, we do a good job too. Right. That's, that's the root of it. But understanding what makes a good client as far as numbers, as far as their sales, as far as their branding opportunities, all of that is tracked in a much better, more cohesive way. The whole is so much more than the parts. Like the salesman just sees his little world, right? But for me to be able to see what's going on across the scope of the whole company, and you can see someone that's being incredibly successful and 
figure out how to replicate that. And really, isn't our job to find someone that's struggling and figure out how to help them, right? This is all really clear in a way that maybe it wasn't, you know, before. You know, salesmen are really good at telling stories, right? That's what we do. So having a, you know, a great product, a great team still doesn't mean you get new customers. You still have to be in front of them. You still need to know who to target and how to go after them and and get in front of them to make, to turn them into those new customers is part of what I'm hearing. To me, it's about authenticity, always authenticity, telling a consistent story across all the salespeople, right? What is our hymnal at Chip and Hook? What do we do? Our products sell your products. We're not, you're not going to come to us and say, oh, look at this, you know, ring finger. How much can you make this for me for? That's not our thing, right? I'm more interested in that ridiculous piece of jewelry or that ridiculous pair of glasses that doesn't fit on any displays. How do we tell that story? Where's your problem, right? And telling that across the board has been incredibly helpful. The other thing that's unique about Chip and Hook, really unique, is there are no constraints on our designers. I mean, no constraints. They're allowed to draw with their imaginations. And this has been Chip and Hook's way for 30 years. They can draw with their imagination. It's our job to find the factory that can make that dream come true. But there are no Hmm. constraints like, okay, this is what this factory's capacity and capabilities are. No, we go out. I remember years ago, we had a huge customer that wanted to put an iPad, when iPads were new, into a counter pad. And we went to our factory and tried to make it. It didn't work because we're, we're not making stuff that people drop. And so when I was over in China, I went to a place that made laptop bags. And I worked with a whole new client and I taught them how to make it look like a jewelry presentation, right? And we use that as to make these however many they were. Always being flexible. And we have probably 15 factories we regularly work with in China and we own vertically integrated in Central America. So if we can't make it in our group, we'll find the group that can. And that's really unusual. That is really unusual. You know, what I'm hearing is is not just the artistic side of things, which I think is a big thing too, but also really the mindset thing. You're looking at problem first, right? Like the, the rock in the shoe, but then drawing all the way through to, we need to find the solution for that client. We need to navigate it. And of course, there's going to be a solution out there. We just haven't hit upon it yet. But you kind of get good at it. If you do it enough times, you kind of get good at it. And I think our guys walking in with a blank piece of paper, when you think about it, every project starts with a pencil and a piece of paper, right? And someone's sketching something and say, well, what about this? And that's kind of unusual. It's so custom in the chip and hook world. So we come up with a beautiful display for client A, and they may buy it for three years, and then they have to change it again, right? And that's okay. But in general, our stuff doesn't replicate. We're starting every project with a blank piece of paper. That's really cool to me. That's what was always interesting. Every day was like Jumanji. What's coming? 
Yeah, exactly. Is Chip and Hook getting into like the 3D printing and custom development and stuff? Absolutely. I remember, you know, 20 years ago, I would be in China because you can draw a neck form and the way a necklace hangs on it, but it doesn't, you have to have the jewelry and lay it on the neck form to make sure that the curves are right. Stuff that's way, way beneath the noise. No one's going to notice it, but you'll notice it in your brain. Nowadays, we can actually build a 3D model and do it in the office and change it twice before it even, and then send the 3D model, send the file. They make their own 3D model in China or Salvador or wherever it's being made. So you do a 3D image of the jewelry and then send the image of that and then they lay it out, you know, with their own 3D printing of it in the display case so that you know exactly how it's going to work. Sometimes. Or just, we had a case recently, it was really really an award-winning display that was, uh, they needed real flexibility. And so we came up with these octagon shapes. The designers came up with this, these octagon shapes that were magnetic. So they kind of snapped together and they could make this beautiful window display to fit any one of 150 different window configurations, right? And still tell this brand story. It was really magnificent. That started with 3D. That started with 3D printers because we weren't sure we could make it. We, you know, they designed it. Woohoo! <laughs> now let's figure out how to make it. This stuff is moving so quickly. I, I was at a, a factory a couple of weeks back in St. Louis that was making images. Uh, dentists would send them images of teeth and then they would make a 3D image of the teeth and then they would make a 3D, 3D printing with metal of the braces that would go on the teeth so that it would be perfectly fit when it gets back to the dentist. All they need to do is connect it very different than the orthodonture of, of your and my youth where everything was custom wired in your mouth. Can you imagine? The assists that are available to us in manufacturing today are insane and they're changing. You know, it's like your computer's trash in two years, same way with your 3D printer, you know, because there's just got more cool stuff all the time. But it's made our life easier. But at the end of the day, it's all about figuring out what the problem is. It starts with the problem and hopefully, dear mother of goodness, hopefully a solution. Right, right. And and hopefully that'll lend the end customer, the doctor or the retail agency or, or what have you, being able to display their product better and sell more. So it's all part of that one chain, right? You know, I got to tell you... <laughs> Every vacation picture I have, there's a couple of the kids, one of my wife, and then there's a lot of displays and windows in different parts of the country. My wife gets so mad. We get home and review the pictures. I go, look at this. All this stuff is misaligned. It's chaos in people's mind. They're not going to buy anything. And she goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's see the pictures of the kids on the beach. Oops. (laughs) <laughs> that's that's so funny, Paul. My my growing up, my dad was an advertising executive. He was a madman on Madison Avenue in New York, and we watched TV for the commercials, kind of like the Oscars, right? Or uh, or the Super Bowl, wild stuff. Yeah, it's uh, it's an amazing. I'm really glad that I found this little niche that allowed for so much creativity. You know, it's just a weird little corner of the world, but I guess. All of us in business are in weird little corners of the world, right? If you really strip it away, there's an entrepreneurial spirit, I think, to most people in businesses under 50 million, right? There's 
There's people that are driving it. And you can make a change, right? It's just the exciting part to me was always how quickly you could make an impact. And and I don't think you get that in really big businesses. I probably no. wouldn't be successful at Toyota and not to knock Toyota, but just a big corporate environment. You pick the big corporate environment. Although sometimes like, like I had this sort of moment, I was at a cocktail party and I was talking with this guy and I said, what do you do? And he's like, I'm the nut buyer for Nestle. And I'm like, well, what does that mean? And he's like, well, I fly to Brazil for the nut harvest and I try all the nuts and I tell Nestle which nuts to buy for all the candy bars. My brother used to work in the Alabama prison systems as a drug and alcohol rehabilitation therapist. And a big wig was coming through once and, you know, they were all sitting and the guest asked for an extra pat of butter. The inmate said, everybody gets one pat. And he says, oh, you know, I'm the supervisor of all the prisons in Alabama. He said, oh, I'm the guy in charge of handing out the pats of butter. (laughs) I've always remembered that. Everybody's got a job, baby. (laughs) No doubt. No doubt. Well, Paul, this this has been awesome to have you on the podcast. I really want to thank you. I mean, we, we covered so much interesting stuff, like talking about packaging being the new retail with the unboxing. Amazing. Great, great stuff right there. Of course, your whole philosophy about being authentic and really finding the rock in the shoe as the problem. I mean, that's so important for everybody to be focusing on in their business. And we talked a little bit about tech adoption and and ways to go about that. I think there's a lot of takeaways from this podcast that people can get a lot of value out of. So I really, really appreciate your joining us today. It was my pleasure. And I have to say, one of the great surprises of my life was working towards the end of my career with Spiro. It was just so easy. It's been a great ride and it was really wonderful talking with you. Thank you, Paul. Hey, um, everybody who's listening, as a reminder, you can find every episode of the Make It, Move It, Sell It podcast at Spiro.ai backslash podcast. And if you thought the conversation that Paul and I was interesting or you took a couple of tidbits out of this that might be helpful to your business, why not give us a good review or a rating or a thumbs up or whatever people do, Paul, when they're out there uh, in social media, you know, post it on LinkedIn. I know Paul is a big LinkedIn guy, so tag him or me up there. And everybody, thanks for tuning in. We look forward to the next episode.